0: everyone and welcome to the mother kind podcast the show that brings you the world leading experts and thinkers that you need to help you navigate the massive challenges of motherhood and life with more knowledge self-compassion joy and perspective This week is one of those game changer episodes. I can just feel it that you are going to love this episode. It is with Donna Lancaster. Donna has worked as a coach and therapist for more than 25 years. She was formerly head of teaching at the Hoffman Institute in the UK, and she co-created The Bridge Retreat, a six-day personal development experience. This episode is about healing. It's about how we have to face our past if we want a different future. And I say this often, but I do believe this episode has the potential to save lives and change lives, both ours and future generations. One idea that I absolutely love from this episode is that we have two parts to our lives. Both are very necessary. The first one is where we are more led by ego, where we need validation. We might look to careers or we might want to look good or earn money or buy us things that we'll think will make us happy. Essentially, we're more focused in that first part of our lives on fitting in, on being accepted, on feeling validated And then if we're lucky, we get to move into this phase two, which is often triggered by a really big life event like motherhood, divorce, or maybe illness. Where something happens and we feel flawed and it unlocks deeper truth in us, where we realize that life is so much deeper than that, where we realize that happiness is an inside job, that things and people and all of those things that we might have accumulated on the outside, they never really made us that happy anyway. And in this phase two, you are driven less by status and more by soul, and you might have a desire to serve the world in some way, to help in some way. Donna shares that not everyone makes the leap from phase one to phase two. Some people make it at 20. Some people make it at 80. But I absolutely love the concept because it doesn't matter which phase you're in. Both are totally necessary. And I just absolutely adore the way that Donna talks about that as part of her work. So I hope that you enjoy that too just a little warning there are some heavy subjects in this episode including suicide so please do be mindful of that before you continue listening I hope you love the episode here it is Donna I am very excited this morning so thank you for coming on thank you for inviting me and I think we invited ourselves actually didn't we
1: (laughs) (laughs) We did. We did. <laughs> my publisher invited me on, but thank you for accepting that. I love what you're doing, Zoe. I said to you um, in my message to you, I just love what you're offering the world and mothers in particular. It's amazing work you're doing.
0: True service. Thank you. Yes, that's how it started. And I want to talk to you about your service. I wanted to start right at the start, and I wanted to share these words that are in the start of your book, which is face down on the floor in a lady's loo. Might seem like an unlikely place for personal transformation but that's where mine began. I was exhausted, burnt out, and the cumulative weight of my unhappiness had become unbearable. Although my mind had refused to acknowledge this devastating truth, my body found a way to make me feel it. Yes, indeed. Tell us about that moment and how you got there.
1: Wow, how long you got? But I mean, that moment was like many of those significant sort of life crises moments where at the time it's absolutely horrendous. But when we look back and we can see that that was a pivotal moment that kind of launched us into a new way of being or launched us into a new phase of our life. And that was absolutely mine. You know, I was a, you know, I had two children. I was also at that time partly looking after my sister's children. And I was working, as you know, as a child protection social worker, and I was juggling a lot of balls, you know, and and also with my own unhealed trauma in the pot. And so all of that kind of culminated in this moment where life, the universe whatever you want to call it was so generous (laughs) that it said enough and it brought me to my knees and what better way to really lean into humility Zoe than to go face down into humility street as I call it and that was when the healing really began then because I couldn't carry on the way i had been existing
0: do you think it has to be that way it was that way for me and it's that way for so many I speak to, but you've taken thousands of people through this process. Is it often a moment like that where your physical body collapses or are there other ways into this deep healing that we're going to be talking about and, and really sort of looking at our past, which we've tried to ignore? Does it need to be dramatic? No. No. I think for somebody
1: obviously like yourself and myself, we maybe needed that little bit more of a push.
0: I always say that. That's exactly what I say. I'm like, I'm so bloody stubborn. I will just grip on and push through that. It needed to be dramatic to wake me up. Exactly. And the same for me.
1: And I'm also a warrior woman. I've described myself as a warrior woman in recovery. And I needed that warrior persona to survive my childhood. But in the end, it started to eat itself, you know, in on itself, and it began to destroy me. And so that shell needed to collapse and fall away. But I think for other people, it's usually a painful moment I think I always say Zoe that pain is one of the greatest spiritual teachers that we ever experience you know and I think most people it's a a loss of a part of themselves it's a loss of a job or a relationship or dreams lost dreams you know and things like missed motherhood all of those kind of really challenging life situations that break our heart wide open as I say it doesn't have to be extreme, but it's generally painful.
0: And what about motherhood and the entry to motherhood? Because what I had no idea was going to happen, actually, is that, you know, I'd already done quite a lot of my healing work by the time I came a mum, but anything that was left for me to see came up to the surface. I almost couldn't believe it was happening. It was like just this massive mirror. Have you seen that? Is that something that you've experienced? And did you experience that yourself? How old were your kids when you had your bathroom floor moment? So when I had my bathroom floor moment, I was, I think,
1: 30. I was a mother at 18. So, you know, they were a bit older then. So my daughter would have been, what, 12 then. My eldest daughter would have been 12. And then the youngest daughter would have been nine, something like that. Again, it's that thing. If pain is a great spiritual teacher, so are children, as you know, as I know, is that they will show us. They're like a mirror. They will literally hold up a mirror to us and say, do you know what you don't want to look at? here it is you know the parts that you thought were healed not quite (laughs) you know what still needs addressing here it is because they're so wise children and they're so intuitive and also innocent and if we haven't healed our own what I call the wounded child parts of ourselves then what that means is we can then look at our children and it can be triggering for us even to see them in their innocence in their playful joy you know I remember one of many incidents with my own children when they were small and they were giggling in the back of the car Zoe. And I remember they're two little girls and they're I think they were mucking around, they were fighting over something, but it was giggly. It wasn't thing. And I was trying to get to school, the car had broken down, I was super stressed. I needed to get them to school, get to work, all the things that us mothers face. And I remember just saying, Shut up, stop giggling like this. You know, it was really too painful for me to hear that joy, because joy was so far away from being a part of my life at that time. Does that make sense?
0: Makes so much sense. And so tell us about, you mentioned that phrase, wounded child, and it's so core to what you help people do. Why do we have to go back and look at those childhoods? parts of ourselves. And you said at one point in the book, you you used to have this belief that if you just ignored the past, it would leave you be. And I know so many people think that. I don't want to go back. It's too painful. Why do we have to? It's like the first step on the bridge or one of the early steps on the bridge, isn't it? But why? Why, Donna? (laughs)
1: Why? I know it's that sort of existential why? (laughs) Please don't make me go back. But I think we don't have to go back at all. But I believe that if you You know, if you had a really lovely childhood, if you had a really balanced, healthy childhood with lots of love and lots of attention, etc., then maybe there aren't so many past old wounds that you need to go back and attend to. But most people, no matter how lovely, it's not about parents not being lovely, it's about them being human and as we know as mothers we're human we make mistakes our parents did the same and they certainly most of them didn't grow up in the generation of personal development either certainly in my parents and so they weren't equipped with the kind of reflection skills etc so most people do carry wounds as part of being human and if you don't turn towards them this is what i say in the book is what that means is that the pain of them will leak out of you. And there's this lovely quote I think I use in the book by Richard Raw, when he says, if you do not transform your pain, you will always transmit it. And that's really hard to hear, but it can also be an inspiration. But it's true, isn't it? You see it. You've only got to look at road rage, trolley rage. You know, people's pain is leaking out of them all the time. You know, and even depression has been described as anger turned inwards. You know, their pain turned in on itself towards ourselves. And so there's so much un processed pain that exists in the world, in individuals and collectively, because people aren't shown how to healthily be with those difficult emotions, how to healthily process them through the body. And so people then become... You know, I believe they get constricted on a physical level. It manifests as illness and disease. And then on a sort of emotional, spiritual level, it makes life really heavy. And that's why we need to go back and tend to our wounds if we have them, which most people do as part of the human condition, is because who wants to live a heavy life? You know, I did for 20 years, Zoe, and it was exhausting. And that's the thing. It's exhausting. It's hard enough being a mother, let alone having to, alongside trying to, be the best version of a mother you can be without losing your own identity, which in itself is a challenge. But if you're also carrying this invisible bag full of your unprocessed stuff alongside you, it is such a heavy weight to carry. So I think there's that. And then there's also the inspiration, which can sometimes be challenging for people. But for me, it really inspired me, is our desire as mothers not to pass on that which
0: we will not face. It's true. And I personally find that inspiring as well. I mean, it's sort of why I started Motherkind is, you know, if we don't face it, it just does carry on down the generations and doing a genogram, which is sort of mapping out how it had gone down. And then I could see me and then I could see these two little lines coming from me. And I was like, I've got to do everything that I can. I think the really hard thing, and it's so annoying, and I wish it wasn't this way, is that as you were saying, these children will mirror up to us everything that's not healed. And it is, I think, one of the most important times to delve into the past It's also one of the times when you're just the busiest and the fullest. There's such a tension there, isn't it? And I don't know with all the work that I do and all the experts that I speak to, I still don't know how to square that circle that it just seems really unfair that at the time that we're also trying to hold a marriage and a family and raise these kids and make sure that they're fed or at school, we've also got all this bloody past trauma coming up. I know. And now the bridge retreat's closed, so we can't come to you for six days.
1: (laughs) What are we going to do? I do have other shorter workshops, but I really get what you're saying. You know, part of me thinks when there's such a theme like that, like almost all mothers you speak to will say that, they'll say parenting my children has been the most challenging and most wonderful and inspiring all of that rich mix and it's exhausting etc etc and I think there is something when it's a theme that we get curious and like maybe maybe we're not meant to add another thing in the pot of how you need to do something because mothers have it tough enough around what they should be doing you know you're judged if you go to work you're judged if you stay at home You, you know mothers are just judged you know as are women so therefore I'm definitely against having raised two children by myself and now having three grandchildren and seeing my own children with their struggles to be mothers to these children and all of that layered dynamics is I don't want to add to the pot of mothers feeling like there's something they have to do like in this book oh I've got all these resources I've got to you know even if you take one thing from the book that really lands with you and you think this could help me just settle myself like the self-soothing visualization or something which is really about learning to self-parent all of those things just I don't want to add to a mother's heavy burden because it's tough enough but I also think it comes back to as well Zoe this whole thing of it takes a village and so many women don't have those extended grandparents, aunts, uncles, all of that of kind of old village style friends, everybody was raising this child or these children rather than just this mother 24-7, 365, you know. So that's also a kind of structural thing that I think is missing for so many women, so many mothers, is they don't have that sort of support that they can get that space to say, okay, this is my time, maybe I want to do a bit of inner work, maybe I want to do some reflective practices, maybe I want to meditate. You know, I was listening to your wonderful interview with Rupert Spearer, which I loved, absolutely loved that. And I love his work and him talking about just those pockets of 10 seconds, 20 seconds and leaning back into the awareness in those moments. And I think that's all we can really ask of ourselves is just finding little pockets for ourselves. But it's not easy. I know that much.
0: Yeah, it's true. And yet, you know, the sort of converse is that as you were describing is that When we can do some of that healing work, it does unlock more expansion and more joy and less giving a shit about the judgment. So it makes it easier. But the input and the time we have to find to do it is just sometimes impossible, isn't it? It can be, especially in the early years.
1: I think as your children get a little bit older, that's when you maybe have a little bit more space, you you know, maybe. But definitely in those early years, I think it can be a struggle to do those extra bits.
0: Yeah, I had someone on the podcast. Do you know Mandy Salagari? She's an addiction expert. She's amazing and she said this phrase I've never forgotten, which that it's nature's cruelest trick. That at the time that our children, you know, we know zero to seven is when our beliefs about ourselves and the world get wired. It's also the time when, as mothers and caregivers, we have the least time to focus on. She just said it's so cruel that it is that way. And for me, hearing that, it helped me take the judgment off, and it helped me just realize that all we can do, or all I can do, I'll speak for myself, is just try and perfectly to take those moments, and that's it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to talk about one of the tools that you talk about that I love, which is the emotional timeline, because people might be thinking, "Okay, lovely, Zoe, lovely Donna, where am I going to start? Give me a tools. Right at the start of the book is this emotional timeline. Can you tell us about that and how it works and why it might be interesting for a mother to do? It's really basically mapping on a timeline
1: what I call your heartbreak, so all the different significant events in your life, some small, some seemingly small, and the bigger kind of life-changing moments, to map them chronologically so you get this sense of the pain that you have faced and perhaps not healed or not yet healed, going through that and how it felt at the time, because these are where the stepping stones towards understanding how there's parts of you that have become wounded and that's what I describe as the wounded child. So, for example, if you mapped on your timeline that at four years old your father or your, one of your parents went away through divorce or separation, et cetera, and that was a significant moment when you started to just see them at weekends or not see them at all, that you basically recognise that there may be a part of you, if you weren't supported to grieve what happened at the time, because some people just don't they just think that children can carry on and you know it's just suddenly you're just seeing dad at weekends and there's no emotional impact and certainly in my day that's what it was like so then there could be a part of you likely is a part of you that is frozen in time at four years old to some degree and that's what we call your wounded child so it doesn't mean that you go around behaving all the time like a four-year-old but it does mean in certain situations that that part of you may be triggered. So if your father left, as an example, at four, and you felt, and this is what you explore on the timeline, you felt abandoned and rejected, which are common core wounds for people, it means that you will likely get that triggered, say in intimate relationships or friendships, where somebody maybe doesn't call when they say they're going to or they end a relationship and you get that historical pain is disproportionate to the current wound, It's disproportionate to the current situation, you know, and then that is where through this timeline you can start to see – themes in your life like that's why I get this abandonment wound gets triggered that's why I have issues around self-worth that's why and you just chart them along on this timeline to help yourself understand and looking through a compassionate lens is so important it's like oh it's not to say oh my god what a screw-up I am it's like oh my goodness look how much I've been through and I'm still here and look how much has happened to me that I need to Slowly, step by step, turn towards through loving and compassionate eyes to heal. That's why the timeline can be very powerful. You know, it's a bit like you were saying with that example about the cruelty of nature. You know, it's like the timeline gives a sort of, ah, of course. You know, it's like, of course I behave
0: the way I do sometimes because there's a part of me that's still full. I think it's so powerful that awareness, isn't it? And I've got two questions on this. The first one is, what if you have no memories. Lots of people that I speak to are like, I just don't remember my childhood. Why does that happen? Maybe answer that first, and then I'll ask you part two in a sec. So
1: I think the point about that is that when you can't remember childhood memories, it can be a trauma reaction. Like for me, I have very few early childhood memories because I grew up in a very traumatic environment. There's a lot of violence and chaos and some very difficult life experiences. So it can be that you don't remember because you're being kept safe by your mind for that, It's like it's been put in a box. And also many of us don't have many earlier memories. That's also just the reality of growing up, isn't it? Sometimes people jump to the conclusion like, I know something terrible must have happened because I can't remember anything before 10. And it doesn't necessarily equate. It can just be though that they can't remember because you can't remember as most people don't remember a lot of early memories. So when I work with, and I've worked with thousands of people over the years that say that, and what I always say is start where you can, whether that first memory is at 12, whether that first memory is at 15, start there. And then the other way you can also support yourself in this timeline is by starting with some of the core wounds that you recognize. So like if you've got an issue with self worth start to think about where was the first time that I started to feel maybe not good enough so you kind of start with your current wounding and then trace it back you know I call it following the trail so you start to look backwards and just go where did it was it at school oh and then sometimes memories come and you think actually I remember something At infant school, I remember something really young, you know, and then memories can come. So I think it's those two things. Remember what you can, put that on your timeline, and then don't be surprised if other earlier memories come up. And then there's the other bit around start with where you're at, look at what often comes up for you in your wounding, and then follow the trail backwards to that. Oh, and you know the other thing as well, Zoe, is that thinking about significant events like Christmases, birthdays, holidays, sort of family gatherings, family festivals, all of those kind of things can help us start to go, yeah, how was it in my family at Christmas? How did I feel in my family at Christmas? Was it a joyful and exciting time? Or did I feel lonely and scared? You know, those kind of
0: things can also help
1: when you think of those kind of significant events.
0: That's so helpful. I used to jump to the conclusion that I don't have many memories, something horrific must have happened to me and I think it's so reassuring to hear you say that that A, some of us just don't have many memories. Also something that I've personally found really reassuring is someone said to me, when your body and your nervous system feels ready to remember, it will. It will. And I just found that just oh I used to remember like at night going, remember, remember, remember and it's like you don't need to force it. So like and that's been my experience actually 15 years of sort of doing this sort of stuff is Stuff's popped up as and when it's needed to, right on time, often triggered by my girls because I know that they mirror the same age that I was. I think the second question that I wanted to ask you was, um, I think often when people start, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start delving into these memories. I know how important this is. Donna's told me. I'm going to do this. They might be looking for really big things that happened. And I know a lot of my wounds and the things that I picked up are from tiny things that happened. Is that really common? And can you tell us the Blue Peter box story to demonstrate how small things can have massive impact? We're not always looking for big capital T traumas.
1: Yeah, I think, again, this is such an important thing. It reminds me just before I shared the Blue Peter story is that I remember someone standing up on the bridge and sharing their biggest heartbreak, if you like, and it was something very significant, like they're you know, really sad like their father had taken his own life or something like this. And then the next woman came up and she was really embarrassed and she said oh my pain you know it's not after that how can I possibly but this has really stayed with me and it was around I think something like her guinea pig and as a child she'd had a guinea pig and this guinea pig she'd forgotten to feed it and it died and she had carried this and she was like 35 years old she'd carried this feeling that she'd murdered a life But she was comparing it. And that's what we do sometimes is we compare grief on this kind of hierarchy. And it's like your pain is your pain. It doesn't make it any less valid because that person next to you had X Trauma experience. It's not a competition. There's enough space for all of our pain, you know, and it's absolutely how it impacts you at the time. And that links, though, to the Blue Peter story. So basically, I had watched Blue Peter as a child, and they were really into encouraging children to be creative and to use sticky back plastic. I don't know if they still do that, but I don't even know if it exists in this modern day of recycling and everything. But it was, you know, about making something and making these gifts. And they used to encourage children to make gifts for their parents or whatever, like Mother's Day or whatever it might be. And so I made my mum this gift for Christmas. I'd kind of decorated it and I'd used and I'd done it all by myself you know I thought it was beautiful and I thought it was amazing and so I had given it to my mum anyway fast forward on Christmas day my mum opened it and my dad was there and I think my brother's I can't remember and um, but she said what is it and I was kind of like Ta-da! you know and I was so delighted with my attempts at this kind of creation and it was probably you know it was like I think I'd, I'd used like a a Robinson's plastic like juice bottle and cut that and it was all jagged and I mean it was you know rubbish but that's not the point is it it was like this gift that I tried to make for my mum all by myself and I was only little and then my mum got the giggles when I said you know this is what it is and she sort of got the giggles and then my dad got the giggles and then it kind of spread and the devastation I felt Zoe. and my mum wasn't a bad person it wasn't about that it was like They had no idea that I was so vulnerable. And because I'd had quite a traumatic upbringing already, it broke my heart. And I mean, so much so, Zoe. They moved on within a couple of minutes. My mum said, oh, sorry, sweetheart, it's beautiful. But it was like the break in my heart was already done you know, and so much so that I didn't believe that I had a creative bone in my body for years. I didn't do anything arty or crafty for years and years after that because it crushed me. So, that's an example of something that seems really insignificant. But if you are already a vulnerable child or if you're very sensitive, as I was, both those things, it was really devastating to me.
0: And what would have a good repair been? So I'm thinking about a mother who might've gone, oh shit, I've done that. I don't want my kid, like you said, it was decades before you lent into your creativity again. What would a repair be? Apology, always. And my mum did, she said, oh, sorry. But she skimmed
1: over it because that was just how it was done in my house that we didn't really dwell on anything that had made anyone cry or anything like that. So there was no support to be with my emotions around it. I think I was told to stop being silly as well, which is like wound on top of wound. Whereas what we really need to be doing when we make those blunders, and I've done that. You know, I remember having a special drawer for my daughter's various offerings and stuff like this. And then my daughter opening it and seeing that I chucked something away, you know, because it was so many gifts of you know sticky back plastic equivalents and eventually I was sort of trying to discreetly recycle some of them and then you know her being upset that she'd found that I hadn't kept them and it's that thing of this is where the power of apology comes in Zoe where we sit with our children or our child and explain I'm really sorry that I giggled then and I imagine um, that's the imagination piece where you validate and I imagine that really hurt your feelings I can see you're really upset, you know, so you really mirror what they're going through. You allow space for it, let them cry, hold them. And then you also say, I made a mistake, you know, I made a mistake and I'm really sorry for that. I didn't, I wasn't laughing at you. I just got the giggles, da, 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 da. You know, so you're kind of allowing space for their emotions whilst at the same time acknowledging so important that sorry to say sorry. And this is what I did. It's almost like I'll do better next time. You know, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Do you think it's inevitable that we will wound our children? A hundred percent. I could see by your face, that wasn't what you wanted to hear.
0: (laughs) No, it was. It was. The pause was for dramatic effect. Oh, okay. Okay.
1: (laughs) I think it's 100%. And I think some mothers, when they hear that, they may think, oh, no, 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 no. And I get that. But I really have a kind of a transpersonal, a more spiritual lens at this stage in my life where I recognize that as part of the human condition, we will all experience pain and loss and suffering. We will all hurt other people. Good people make poor choices. You know, I see that broader sense, and that's the same for mothering, is how children are to some degree you know and we can lessen as much as possible as we do our own work but they are meant to face difficulties and suffering we can't wrap our children up in cotton wool not only would it not serve them but it certainly wouldn't give them a resilience for life you know children are meant to rub up against life they're meant to experience their mothers their parents as sometimes making mistakes because that models to them that they can make a mistake It models to them that when we hurt somebody, we say sorry. And it shows them that their parents are flawed human beings because what the world needs is more tender, vulnerable, flawed human beings. It's that welcoming all parts of ourselves so our children can say there's a part of me that makes mistakes or that bumbles just like mummy. And that's okay, And that's what we want for our children. So absolutely, wounding is part of the human journey. It's necessary.
0: A quick word from our sponsor, Athletic Greens. So I started taking AG1 about six months ago now because I wanted more energy. Who doesn't? And I wanted to look after my health more proactively. So AG1 is a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. Basically all the things. I take it every morning as I'm making the girl's porridge and as I'm drinking it, it actually tastes really nice. I'm reminding myself that I am worth looking after, that I can only be the mum that I want to be when I look after myself too. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Back to the episode. If you could go back and have your childhood again, Would you take away the pain of the Blue Peter Box moments of the violence that you grew up with, the addiction in your home? Would you get rid of it or would you keep it? It's a really interesting question because obviously, you know, when I look like
1: yesterday, when my book was published yesterday and I looked at that little photo of me, at that little sad little girl at four years old, and I felt grief for her. You know, a wave of grief came over me and I thought, isn't it sad that any child, not just that part of me but any child has had to face as children some children do really difficult early life situations so on that human level there's a part of me that I think oh I wonder what life would have been like to have had a father who held me in his arms and told me that I was wonderful I wonder what that would have been like and how different my life would have been so I do reflect on that but would I change it absolutely not I'm a fabulous person. (laughs) I'm a flawed, fabulous person, Zoe. And I like myself very much. I think I have a lot to give. And I think I, like you, am in service
0: in the world. And would I be in service in this way if I hadn't suffered? Probably not. There's no way. And, And there's no way Mother Kind would exist. No way. Exactly. It's like you would be doing something else in your comfortable life, you know,
1: and it's like, look how many lives you are serving and assisting and
0: supporting by the work that you're doing because you suffered. It's again one of those dichotomies, isn't it? Life is just full of these complex dichotomies, I think. And one of them is that our suffering and pain unlocks. You know, you talk about phase one and phase two. Maybe this is would be a really good place to talk about that, but the pain and the limits and the constriction and the trauma can unlock. So much more freedom and joy and gratitude than we ever would have had access to otherwise.
1: Yes. This makes me so excited when you say that, Zoe, because originally the bridge was going to be called the secret bridge to joy. Because when people meet me, they hear words of you know grief and loss and they expect I'm gonna be a miserable bugger, you know, and then they meet me. And I'm like really joyful and open, and I feel really lighthearted. And they're like, oh, but you're the, aren't you the grief woman? You know, and it's like the complete opposite because when you turn towards your pain and you really transform it, when you do your healing work, what that does is basically get rid of all that heavy baggage that we talked about earlier and it lightens your load it creates space inside you for joy to fill and so I spent 20 years of my life essentially carrying that heavy bag of unprocessed pain around that's a long time and I raised my two children during that and I did the best I could and I have nothing but compassion for myself as a young struggling mother for the choices I made some of them poor choices but now I'm just so full of joy because I've cleared the debris to my own soul Zoe it's like oh oh what a relief I don't have to carry all that shit around anymore (laughs) so it's a really liberating place and that's the secret bridge to joy is that you do your inner work you do what I call your grief work yes it's painful at the time as you know healing work is painful at the time but not nearly as painful as people think and certainly not as painful as crawling through life and existing and not living that grief work and this kind of inner healing
0: determines whether you will exist or live and I choose to live. I've said this phrase, phase one and phase two. Can you describe what that is? And then I'm going to ask you a second question. So phase one is very much about what I call the outside in
1: phase of life. It's the necessary egoic phase of life. And I don't mean that in self-obsession. It means the healthy ego looks outside of itself to build up our life. So we say the career, the money, the partner, the home, etc. sometimes the shoes, whatever it might be, these things, we look outside of ourselves for these things to complete us, to build our life, you know, and that's the phase one of life and it's a, a necessary, that's when often there's a lot of struggle and we can as part of that, certainly at the sort of midpoint, and I'm not talking about midlife, I'm talking about those face down in the loo moments that we all face in one form or another, where we start to move into phase two and deepen into life. But that first phase is outside in living. Outside of us is going to somehow, and you know, to some degree, it feels like we start to get a stronger sense of who we are. It builds our identity. That's phase one. And then phase two is more about Inside out living, where you start to go internally to look at the resources you have inside that has nothing to do with the external. So it's nothing to do with the shoes or how much money you have or what car you drive or it bores us senseless, that stuff in phase two, you know. It tends to be meaningless because it is, you know, and you move beyond ego into what I would call spirit living. So, this is more, if you like, phase two is more of a spiritual dimension to life where we really see it's an inside job. Everything is about coming from resourcing ourselves and a different kind of riches, the kind of riches that kind of come up from inside. That's like the joy that I spoke of. It's an internal celebration. That's what joy is. And then we start to then. And this is where the myth of self-love being self-obsession its the opposite. When we really fall in love with ourselves and life as part of that is that once we've done our inner healing work in phase two, we start to like yourself. Absolutely, you're moving into phase two because because—and it doesn't mean you don't enjoy shoes, by the way. It just means that you realize they don't define you. And then you start to look up after you've done your healing work and you say, how can I love and serve more in the world? And that's what phase two is about. Phase one, I call the small story of me. And I don't mean that rudely. And phase two is the
0: bigger story of we. That's the difference. I love it so much because I know that I had to go through that phase one. And sometimes I still go back to it, of course. It's like that moment when you go, is this it? This can't be it. I remember ticking off the boxes like, okay, so I have got a really good job now and I drove a flashy car because I worked for a car company and I had I was out every Friday night and seemingly on paper, but I was like dead inside. I was like, this cannot be it. This cannot be it. And I'm just so grateful that my family imploded around me, which meant that I had to then, I got in through Al-Anon was where my healing started. I'm so grateful. And I guess the other thing that I just want to underscore is that this isn't about age. This isn't like you hit 50. Because I've known some, like Stephen Bartlett, who I love. I don't know if you know him. He talks about this. He was 24, millionaire. He was like empty inside. And then there are some sort of 60, 70-year-olds who are still, you see them, don't you? Like, you know, those sort of old guys who are still going clubbing and (laughs) like, you know. Peter Pan syndrome. So it's not about age, is it? It's about those bathroom floor moments, isn't
1: it? It's about those bathroom floor moments. What it is in essence though is a form of initiation and that's why I don't want to get too much into the whole gender specifics but with the example of the Peter Pan syndrome that you just described you know a man of 60 you know still going clubbing and on a skateboard and no disrespect but it's like Sometimes men don't have or face some of the initiations that women have with their menstrual cycle, with giving birth, the birthing process, with becoming a mother, with raising children. You know, we are being called by life, which is initiation again and again to grow into a better version of ourselves. And some men don't have that. And that's not about apportioning blame, it's just a reality. And so some people, they stay stuck at 15-year-old boys when they're 65. So it's absolutely, this phase one and two is not about chronological age, it's about a calling, it's about an initiation process, and it can happen at different times. And often, many times over, you get different callings at different stages in your life when you deepen even more so an example for me is when my own mother died sorry and that deepened me and I was 43 when my mum died and that dropped me into another level of phase two
0: that really deepened my connection to life I'm glad you said that because I think one of the big differences that I've seen between phase one and phase two is phase one. I used to be like, why is this happening to me? This is so unfair. Why have I got a shit ass boss? Why have I not got, you know, the body that that girl has? Why have I not figured out? all?" I was so sort of like outward. Whereas now I guess in phase two, the question that I ask myself is, ah, this keeps happening. What is this trying to teach me? I think that's a massive difference I've noticed between phase one and phase two, between that outward, like the world is to blame, nothing to do with me. And phase two, that inside out living that you talk about, which is like, everything can serve me for going deeper into myself. Yes. And it's that thing of why me into why not me? I think in phase one, if we get
1: ill or someone leaves us, you say, why me? In phase two, you absolutely say, okay, there's a theme here. My relationships keep not working out or whatever it might be. But there's also that question of why not me? Why wouldn't it be me versus you or somebody else? And that's the phase two kind of awareness is that we all have life situations that are different and the same in that we all experience loss and pain and heartbreak. So somebody might be through a divorce and somebody else, it
0: might be through a death, you know, but why not me? It could be you, why not me? I always remember someone that I knew really well in my recovery rooms, her partner died and she always used to say that, why not me? Yeah. And you always talk about these sort of triggers being gateways to healing. How does someone switch their mindset from like, I'm just pissed off with the world and it's too hard. And yes, society doesn't support us mothers well enough. And there's very real things wrong with the world versus how is this a gateway to my healing? How do we differentiate those two things?
1: I think it's really tricky because we live in a world that colludes with us staying in what you're talking about is a victim archetype. Colludes with us blaming When I experienced my trauma as a child, I was a victim because I was powerless. And a true victim is powerless over their circumstances as our children. They're reliant on us as their parents for their very life, you know. So when you're a child, you are a victim. But when you're 25, 35, 45 years old, you have a choice. You can make different choices that can take back your power in your life circumstances. But we live in a society that is very... Invested in us staying victims so that we blame other people, we point the finger, we have unrealistic expectations. And I'm sorry to say, Zoe, is there also can be a lot of power in staying a victim? It's like I've worked with so many people, they say, No, my dad he didn't love me the way I needed. And I refuse to forgive him because that means he gets off the hook. And it's like, you're 45. Don't you want to live your life? Your dad's still controlling your life, you know? So I think there's that bit around moving out of the place of victim is something, it really requires a level of consciousness. And we're not ready for that until we have those bathroom floor moments. I will say it's like your soul wafting, smelling salts under your nose, you know, those moments when your soul goes, come on, Zoe, come on, Donna, and you're like, you start to wake up, essentially. So I'm not sure that's answered your question, but it's something around expectations as well. So, I mean, it's like when I stopped having expectations that I was entitled to anything, my life got a whole lot lighter. I started to be more grateful for everything and expect nothing and my life just got
0: lighter as a part of that. And you talked about forgiveness. And this is something I specifically wanted to talk to you about because I think forgiveness has been so central to my healing. And when I say that to people, they're like, what? Because I think there's this sort of common idea that forgiving is being like, it's cool. Don't worry about it. And that's not the forgiveness that you talk about. So what is the real forgiveness. And why is it so fundamental, as you say, between going between stepping more into this phase two? I think forgiveness is a bit like anger.
1: It's really misunderstood. I have a spiritual teacher and she says that forgiveness is something that needs to come from the soul. It doesn't really come from the human part of you. It comes from our soul part of us. And I really like that because I get it. It's almost like we need help from Something bigger than us, if you like, to kind of have the capacity, especially if we've been really badly hurt and traumatized. But the thing with forgiveness is, first of all, no one has the right to say you should forgive. You know, it makes me want to poke people in the eyes when they say that. It's not about, oh, you have to forgive your parents for what happened, or you have to forgive someone that abused you as a partner. It's not about that. It's recognizing, again, coming back to that whole analogy around power that in choosing not to grieve what happened to you in the first place, because you need grieving in order to create space for forgiveness. But in choosing not to do that, you stay negatively attached to the person or situation that hurt you. That is not freedom. So the biggest gift we can give ourselves, and it is a process, and it took me like 25 years to forgive my parents for what my childhood was like. It wasn't an overnight, you know, oh, yeah, great, you know, that trauma, don't worry about it, mum. You know, it was a slow process of gradually, gradually working on the wounds, working on my pain, and then gradually getting to a place in phase two where you can look at your life and you can see all of the riches and the wounds were a gateway to something else. And there was always a gift in the dirt It might have had a turd bow on the top, but it was still a gift, you know. And then you get to that place where you just say, I wanna be free. I wanna live my life unencumbered by what happened to me when I was five, 10, 15, 30 years old. And that for me is supported by the process of forgiveness. Sometimes we have to forgive again, not have to, but we, we need to revisit our forgiveness for ourselves as well as others again and again and again. It's not a one-off. Oh, I've forgiven them. That's okay. My partner abused me. That's okay. It's about revisiting and softening and softening and softening and, softening and realizing most importantly, forgiveness is for you. It's not about that person that did that thing to you. It's to free yourself from that invisible thread that keeps you attached to them.
0: Yes, I think it's in your book and someone said it to me a few years ago as well is that you're not saying it was okay it's actually the opposite you're processing the pain of what happened and then you're saying I no longer choose to let this define me and you cut the cord the other person doesn't even need to know about it no absolutely i think people can think that you have to have this meeting and say i forgive you or write that you know that's not my experience of it i don't think anyone knows the work that i've done on note the things that happened
1: absolutely and it's also that thing of it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a an ending with you know sunsets and hand holding you know like with my own father i've even moved beyond forgiveness where i recognize with my own dad there's nothing to forgive i see the whole landscape of his life and how he suffered and what that meant how his pain leaked out into the wider world and he was an addict and i get it and it's like this beyond forgiveness there's nothing to forgive but i still don't see him because he's toxic so it's not about forgiveness and oh daddy and love and arms and embraces I don't live in a Disney film I just hold no bitterness resentment or grudges or anger towards my father nothing my business with him is done I wish him well I hope he leaves this earth and goes in peace in a gentle way because I know that he's coming towards the end of his life but I don't see him because that's about boundaries. That's about respecting myself, you know? So it's not this Disney idea of running into the
0: arms of the parent that you wish that you'd had when you were five. Did it take you a while to get there? Was it sort of meeting him? Okay, this feels toxic. I don't feel safe next time. Because this is something that is not talked about enough, is it? About when we know to lower expectations of a parent, stop going to the hardware store for bread, which is sort of a recovery saying, you know, stop expecting people that can't give love to be able to give it, love them for who they are and what they can do, which is where I'm at with my parents, versus knowing that for your safety, sanity, and for not passing it on, you have to cut them out. How did you get to that process? Yeah, um, 25 years. (laughs) Yeah, so it was a lot of therapy, obviously,
1: and working on myself, and all the stuff that's in the books I You know, I saw my father and I went through a process where I wrote to my father. So I wrote to him to basically offer him my forgiveness, even though he didn't acknowledge that he needed forgiveness. But I said, I know you don't think you've done anything wrong, but in this letter, I basically, from my perspective, I said, this was what it was like growing up with you as a violent alcoholic. This is how frightened I was. This is how difficult it was. And I want you to know that I have done my own work and I know you don't need my forgiveness, but I offer it to you anyway. And I want you to know that I'm at peace with what has happened in my childhood and I wish you nothing but the best. Fast forward another few years and eventually it became like it was a family wedding. And then I saw my father at this wedding. And you know what was really interesting? You might have a similar situation or not, but it was like, I remember, you know, my dad, I hadn't seen him for a long time. And I remember him being this giant, sorry. And then I got to this wedding and he was just this small, older a bit sort of sad man you know and my compassion for him was you know re, I, that's when I knew that my work had paid off because I thought wow you really are just this inadequate ill-equipped for life addict basically and so then I saw his behavior without going into detail at the wedding and I thought this is not possible for me you know and that my children were there and it's like sorry I'm not exposing my family to this. And so the decision was made, you know, and then there was one other time when I again tried to see him. And it was the same outcome because, you know, sadly, he never did any healing work. He never got into recovery. And that's his
0: path. And I'm okay with that. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's going to help so many. You talk about setting boundaries with your mum in the book and you talk about having this boundary around, mum, please don't talk about my physical appearance is one of the first things that you mentioned. How do you know when is the time to keep ramping up that consequence? Because I talk about boundaries tons. It's a question I'm always asked. This person, whether it's an in-law or a you know, family member, and I think having children just throws all of this up, doesn't it? This person doesn't respect my boundary. How do I know how tough to be with the consequence? As we know,
1: this is not an easy challenge. I don't know if I say this in the book, but I have this kind of thing that I say. It's like, don't be surprised if you're met with judgment and blame when holding your boundaries with people that have none. So don't be surprised if you're met with judgment and blame when holding your boundaries with people that have none. You know, and so my mum wouldn't know a boundary if it slapped her in the chops, bless her. So it was me teaching her. This is when I became the teacher of my mother, and what an honor to be able to do that, you know first of all, we have to work out, you know, what are our boundaries? Their limits. There's like, what's okay and not okay for me, you know? And essentially we all have our needs, our essential human needs about respect and safety and belonging and love. They're all things that we all share. And so then we start to look at how does that manifest in my life? What values do I have about how I expect to be treated, how I treat other people, what are my standards for integrity? You know, once we get really clear about that, and it's a movable feast, you know, it can change as we continue to grow. And then we start to honour those, our own needs, even in difficult circumstances. It's the even though piece. Even though I know this is going to upset my mum, I'm going to say to my mum, when you comment on my appearance, mum, I feel, not it makes me feel, I feel hurt and upset. And then I don't feel like coming to visit you, mum. And then my mum would say, oh, you're always a drama queen. Oh, you're always. And I say, yeah. And I'm telling you that when you say it, so you just repeat back. It's like, here's my boundary. Don't cross it. Okay, you didn't hear it the first time. So I'm going to say it again. Here's my boundary don't cross it. And it's real bum clenchy stuff because often we're like, Oh, it's my mom. She gave me life, you know, but I just kept saying to my mom and slowly, but surely I taught her how to hold boundaries. I'm sure she went behind my back to my sister and said, oh. but I'm not interested in that. All I'm interested in is when I'm with my mother, that she doesn't comment on what she thinks about my appearance as an example. So it's, to get clear first, as you know, about what is important to us, what makes us feel okay with how people treat us? What are the consequences if they don't? And that's the other thing, as we know, as parents, as mothers, is that people have to have consequences. So with my mum, that example, I'm saying to her, if you continue to comment and make offensive, quite frankly, remarks about what I look like, then I won't come to see you. So that's the consequence. And I have to be willing to honour it just as we do with consistent parenting. If you say to a child, if you do that, this is going to happen, you need to honour that. Otherwise, they learn that you can't be trusted. And then the knock on
0: effect of that is they can't trust themselves. That is going to help so many people. And I love how you make so clear how bloody hard it is to It's really hard, particularly as you then can get black sheeped in the family, can't you? Oh, look at her. Who does she think she is now? Oh, she's read a few books and she's done this. And now she's off thinking that she can say, you know, you can get black sheeped very quickly and feel very othered in a family, can't you? Particularly if the dynamic is to collude or gossip or, you know, if there's toxic dynamics and you decide to step out of that, it's very lonely. It can be
1: very lonely every family has a truth teller Zoe every family has a truth teller you're the truth teller in your family I'm the truth teller in mine the sad price of that sometimes is that you will be scapegoated is that you will sometimes energetically be ousted but what comforts you is that you are living in honor of your own values and needs you're saying I matter enough To tell the truth and to stand by what I say and what I believe, and your parents can roll their eyes as an example. You know, my mum always used to say, "Oh, la di da," (laughs) when I would say such. Oh, yeah, she's gone to university and now, you know, hilarious. But it got easier as well. There was a scapegoating for me for a little bit, and then it got a little bit easier as they just, you know, I was still seen as the difficult one. But they just got more used to the fact that I'm not interested in, quite frankly, your daily mail comments, mum, you know, so no disrespect. But
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think the other thing that's helped me with that is that if it's that dynamic that you are sort of recovering from and you want to be different from, sometimes it's really powerful to see that actually, like, wow, like, look at this reaction that's coming up. Isn't that just a sign that I was so enmeshed with that? I was so sort of doing that too. And now I'm doing something differently. And the other thing that I found is that I know when I changed my role in that system, other people had the opportunity to change theirs role. I mean, it's no surprise to me that I got into recovery and then six months later, members of my family got into recovery. That was 100% because I was changing the input of the dynamic. And it gave other people an opportunity, like we've been exactly talking about, those little openings all the time. It gave a little opening in our family, I think, for everyone to be like, oh, you know, it's changed. Yes. I think that's so important, Zoe. As you change in a family
1: system, you know, as you change, there is a ripple effect. Even if people never do a day's therapy in their life, They are changed by you teaching them a different way of being, and it changes everything, even if they wouldn't admit it to your face, you know, and that is healing in action. That is generational healing. On the Bridge Retreat, we used to say, oh, let me be the one that breaks the chains of dysfunction in my family and in doing so sets us all free. And it really is. It's like when you're the truth teller in the family, when you're the one doing the healing work, make no mistake that, you, you know, your ancestors are cheering you on from the sidelines because you're the one that's breaking the chains of dysfunction in your family.
0: What a powerful little bit to end on. And I have to ask you the final question, which is if you could give any gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and Why?
1: Oh, I thought about this and there's so many gifts I want to give mothers because they're fabulous. Mothers are just doing the hardest unpaid <laughs> job in the world and possibly the most important job in the world, you know, raising healthy, emotionally, physically, intellectually, spiritually healthy adults of the future. It's just such an important job. So my gift to mothers would be to say, it's a remembering, is to remember that good enough parenting is good enough that you don't have to be perfect but it's okay to make mistakes as long as we remember to apologize and say why the stumbles and the bumbles of parenting and mothering are an essential part of your child's growth that good enough which means more often than not so you love your children in healthy ways more often than not And that is good enough for your children. That will give them the secure attachment that they need to be resilient for life. So my gift to mothers is that you are enough. You are
0: enough. That's beautiful. Thank you. I have absolutely loved this conversation. I think it's going to help so many people. I would really encourage everyone to read the book. I read it quickly. It's highlighted. I'm going to go back and do a lot of the exercises It's a brilliant manual for healing. It's a manual for getting from that phase one of feeling overwhelmed and pissed off and stuck into that accessing more joy, peace, freedom, laughter. And I would really encourage everyone, every mother, imagine if we could give your book to every mother, the ripple effect would be unreal. So I really would encourage everyone to check it out. You mentioned you did some workshops. Do you want to share where people can look those up? I have a feeling people are going to want to seek you out.
1: Yeah, so I have a website called deepeningintolife.com. And so I run various workshops, but the bridge retreat obviously is no longer after the pandemic. So we uh, now, Gabby, my work partner and I, we do a two-day workshop called the grief space for those people that want to work on any kind of grief is the natural emotional reaction to any kind of loss that's not just about bereavement but anybody that feels they've got some unprocessed emotions from their own past that those workshops are the two day workshops that we have coming up i also do a workshop just for women which is a small workshop called naked it isn't about getting physically naked it's about living without masks Women quite go, oh, I forgot to get my kit off. Some are excited about the prospect. And some I was are, just
0: thinking, that sounds great. I'd love to come to a naked retreat <laughs> with you. That sounds good. I might do that. That sounds amazing. I'm really, really into women-only spaces at the moment. So you might see me. No, you'd be most welcome. And it's just eight women, small circle. It's right up your streets. I mean. And
1: there's all other things. I do an online spiritual community. You can check it out. Just to say that in terms of if finances are an issue for people that i'm doing an event i'm not sure when this podcast goes out but i'm doing a pay what you can healing event on the 20th of august in west sussex where i live so all the details can be found via my newsletter which can be signed up for deepeningintolife.com and also i'm on instagram at donna lanks
0: perfect thank you so much it's been an absolute honor thank you zoe it's a joy So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on.